Hello and welcome to the Brothers F Podcast. This is a stupid idea. No, it is not, because we are showing the audience what a recitative is. Mm, I don't like it, Juanpi. I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to pick it up from there. This was a hotly contested introduction. I Juan Pablo, I think this is a stupid idea. Juanpi was dying to introduce the pod. Aye, aye, aye. Pod with a recitative. So mm. now you know what a recitative is. Um, yes, a recitative is some Italian or French, I think French word for in an opera when they have a lot of dialogue and they don't have time to get through the music. So instead they say, like, uh, they sing, but kind of speak it at the same time. Andrew, what is the title of today's story? Today's story is called Recitatif by Toni Morrison. It's a short story by the Nobel Laureate. Um, quite a quite a fun read. Wait, wait, wait. But before I, we I, jump into the synopsis. Well, I'm just impressed that he remembers who wrote the story. Yeah. Uh-huh. We were recording an episode earlier this week and Andrew uh, Andrew couldn't bring that to mind. I had had a very long day and I mentioned, oh, Recitatif, bye. And then it completely, I just completely forgot who Toni Morrison was. Just Boom! Yeah, but Andrew, you completely forget a lot of things. So well, yeah, Andrew, well, Andrew, Andrew puts a lot of time in in the salt mines, as we like to say. He puts mm-hmm. a lot of mileage in, working hard. So we're going to let him off the hook. I wanted to run something by you guys because we get the Smithsonian Magazine delivered to our house. It's a great magazine, and they had an incredible article. I think this is this month's issue. I don't know if it's this month or, or a recent issue. No, it's this month. Yeah, April twenty twenty one. This incredible article about wolves who are back in California. So I think this is pretty cool because last summer I got to go to um, Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming, as well as Grand Teton National Park in Montana, I think. No, it's not in Montana. Where's Grand Teton? I don't know. But um, but I went to Yellowstone and Grand Teton out there in the in the in the mountain west. It was a pretty amazing trip. And one of the cool things about Yellowstone is that in the 90s, Probably the most controversial sort of like, uh, what's the word, endeavor or initiative in conservation in the last hundred years, they reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone Valley. And there used to be wolves there, but they were they were killed a long time ago. They were extinct. They brought them down from Canada, reintroduced them. First wolves back in the lower 48. And the wolves are doing pretty well. And one of the wolves, uh, some some years ago, walked... I guess do wolves walk? Loped, loped 800 miles and ended up in California. And now there's some wolves in California. But of course, there's all this tension because uh, the 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 wolves, you know, they're cool and they can sometimes make sense in like the ecosystem. But ranchers who have livestock do not like the wolves. So I just thought this was pretty cool reading about this this tension. And the one thing I wanted to tell you guys was that at one point they had they had a hearing in California. To figure out um, to figure out if uh, if they should declare the wolves an endangered species or not, and so there's a bunch of public hearings. The wolf supporters show up, as well as opponents from the livestock industry. At the final hearing in Fortuna in June 2014, a crowd of 250 packed a room. Some were dressed in wolf suits. All of them had yard previously. That wolf pups. Uh, does that mean you like kill a wolf and skin it? That doesn't seem very you know, conservative. <laughs> doesn't seem very conservative. But okay, we'll bracket that. 
And, uh, you know, there's all this publicity for wolves that people are following. I mean, well, that was the, uh, that must have been the wolf antis, right? No, 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 no. They were the wolf pros, I think. What? That's, and, what? No, no, no. They weren't actually wearing wolf skin. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought they had, like, killed it. Oh, okay. No, no, no. Um, but anyway, anyway, they're arguing, and it says here, the testimonies from wolf supporters were impassioned, sometimes tearful, and included an acapella song. I just wanted to show you that guy with, that with you guys because I, I feel like uh, these ranchers must that must have been like you know the, the, the final straw for them. They're here. They go home that night. They're like Margaret. You know what they made me sit through today? An acapella song on the beauty of wolves. In defense of the wolves that are eating my cows. You know, not not that I have. I don't know. I don't know enough about it to say you know which side of the issue I fall on. I thought it was a pretty yeah. cool article. Pretty amazing photos in the article of. Uh, you know, like of wolves in this really beautiful landscape. But also amazing. Yeah, I think it's pretty beautiful that the wolves are returning, you know. After yeah. many years they've been they've been killed, kicked out, and now they're coming back. It's part, yeah, of, the, yeah. part of the ecosystem. Can't we just like these, uh, uh, stories, trank, trank the wolves and send them back to Yellowstone? Um, I don't know exactly if they think that that's a good thing. Um, I don't know. I don't know all the details. That's what they do to bears. Like if they find a black bear in some suburb, they usually, they don't kill it. They will like trank it and send it back up to the mountains. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, some of the bears they tranquilize, but some bears for some reasons they can't. So I know in Yellowstone last year, for example, they had to kill 14 bears. When bears get too attached to like human food. Yeah. Um, So that's why like everyone's, you know, working on that all the time trying to get keep keep the wildlife away from the people that's like the number one yeah my understanding i may be wrong about this my my understanding is that despite their best efforts to tell everybody who enters yellowstone not to feed the bears still many people feed the bears and that sometimes the bear will just become very attached to like eating craft mac and cheese and whatever other shenanigans people throw at it so in those situations you're kind of done like the bear is just too used to people I wonder yeah, if that point, honestly, develop, like, like metabolic syndrome. Like if they become obese. <laughs> Sorry, this bear has diabetes. <laughs> yeah, bears, oh, bears, yeah, bears are cool animals. I have to say, out in Yellowstone, I was like incredibly impressed. This is not like a very interesting comment. I think most people would agree with it. But I was incredibly impressed by like, the National Park Rangers. They just seemed like extremely competent all across like a very broad range of duties that they have. And, uh, yeah, one of those duties is like managing all this wildlife and dealing with like the very high percentage of very dumb tourists who make it to Yellowstone. So it's cool. You know, how we manage these, this wildlife stuff, I think it's pretty cool. A lot of cool things there. Uh, and as you say, Andrew, pretty encouraging. I would say it's pretty cool to like think of wolves, for example, like returning to territory that they haven't occupied for 150 years. Yeah. Right. Sort of fills the soul with awe. Even if I kind of also get the farmers kicking up a little bit of the fuss. I feel it. I definitely feel the farmers. Fran, you're shaking your head. I mean, look, wolves are cool, but my sympathy for animals that can kill humans is not very high. No, but wolves don't kill humans. Like, maybe two people ever have been killed by wolves because wolves usually see us and don't go after us because we're like, I don't know, they're smart enough to know we're not worth the bother. Dude, I went through a phase where I got... Uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit locked in, a little bit uh, obsessed about wildlife attacks, and wolves do kill humans. 
And you know what? They, they, in particular, they kill children. So, oh, oh. so you know, I I can't I can't uh, express my uh, uncensored sentiments about wolves on the pod. <laughs> that's that's uh i think obviously that's uh that's very fair um no i have i have a strong f wolves uh <laughs> wow <laughs> that's gonna be the fred's gonna be joining those farmers and show up in a car full of bumper stickers yeah i know i know local local office in california and my campaign slogan is going to be F wolves, <laughs> not the F wolves, you know, Fran, as, the full uncensored. As far as I can tell, Fran, if you got to the right county, you would definitely win. So <laughs> do that. Um, I think we used to have a book since we are, a, we are a podcast about books after all. We used to have a book called When Man Becomes Prey. Oh, <laughs> this was a book. What a book. A grizzly bear with its teeth bare on its hind legs. And the whole book was just full. There's probably 50 stories, like horrible stories of, of people who get eaten in all sorts of creative ways by sharks, bears, mountain lions, you name it. The other day, um, we were talking to some people. They were telling us that they had seen a movie the other night. And it was about like this couple there. She said, as she said, there was like four people in the whole, in the whole entire movie. It's about like this couple who go and like, go on a hike and they get lost in the hike <laughs> and um they go on this hike and um they get stuck and they get lost and the lady and the guy are there and the guy actually wanted to propose but the lady was in the bad mood and she said no you're like a complete idiot you got us lost in here are you crazy so not that happy and then a big 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 bear shows up and um eats the guy and uh and uh the people who um <laughs> Who were talking to us about this uh, movie? Were like, and they didn't hesitate to show it either. Oh. They were like, we saw this person in the slice. It was awful. I was like, why do you have to show that in the movie? Well, thank you for that grizzly story. Well, you uh, were talking about grizzly stories. When Man Becomes Prey, pretty pretty cool book. Uh, another cool literary. We'll do once. We'll do an episode about that one. Guys, Good. yeah. Have you seen, uh, have you seen the Liam Neeson movie about wolves? It's called uh, it's called the Gray, but it it could be subtitled uh, Liam Neeson fights wolves. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like taken, except instead of like Eastern European uh, sex traffickers, you're dealing with uh, wolves. That sounds wow. amazing. Yeah, it does. All right, guys. Uh, well, real quick, I was walking around the city earlier today, and. Uh, this lady walks up to me and she's like, oh, sorry to interrupt. Do you want to get the COVID vaccine? I was like, what? She's like, yeah, we, we have a bunch of extra doses. They're going to go bad. We need to give them out. Do you want to just come with me? I was like, yeah, sure. So they pull me into this clinic and it's sort of chaotic because there's tons of people there mulling around. But I filled out the stuff, finally got it. And now, boom, I have my COVID vaccine. That sounds extremely sketchy. Like I would. Andrew's like, did you go to kindergarten? I mean, never follow the lady who says like, "Come follow me. I have yeah. something for you." <laughs> well, I mean, well, she at least wore in a white coat or something. Or like, <laughs> she was a very nice looking mid fifties, mid sixties year old woman. Yeah, she would be, Andrew. Yeah, Andrew, that's like the sketchiest thing I've ever heard. No, 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 no. no. This lady, well, how, she how did you know that you actually got the COVID vaccine? 
uh, I don't know. I have one of those CDC cards that says COVID vaccination record card. I mean, maybe maybe they give you like knockoff, a knockoff vaccine. Like, you know, mm-hmm. how they sell knockoff Rolexes on the street. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, this is yeah. Well, you know, I guess this is an epistemic question, Fran. How could we ever know that we truly have the COVID vaccine? You know? Ooh. Mm, as a former, did I see? I didn't see the shot. philosophy major, I like to respond to your epistemic question by saying, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, okay, wait. But to return briefly to wildlife, I think wildlife is kind of cool. And maybe we can try to find a good book. Listeners, if you have a good book to recommend, please send it in. Because Brothersfpod at gmail.com, by the way. Thank you, Quampy. Because wildlife is a funny thing because I feel like a lot of people who care a lot about wildlife don't actually get the relationship right because you need to give it space, obviously. So I'm thinking now of the guy. When Hoppy told a story about someone getting eaten by bears, I thought he was going to tell a different story. This we also used to have a book or maybe we had a movie about it. There was a guy and they called him like the bear man or something. And he lived with grizzly bears for like 20 years. The grizzly man, maybe something like this. And... He lived with these bears. I think he with his girlfriend as well. And um, sounds like a bad idea. Yeah, and he lived with these bears for twenty years. And uh, they, he was like best friends with the bears, and he had raised like the bears' cubs, and like there was this I'm whole sure. pack of bears. I'm sure he did. The yeah, candles, and then right? one day the bears got hungry and they ate him. Like twenty years into the relationship, so it's like clearly that guy didn't understand something like kind of fundamental about wildlife. And I think, uh, I think there's something to that. It's a tricky thing to get right. Yeah. It's not even like, it's not like you don't even have to be philosophical about it to believe it. Like it just, the science is that these bears have a lot of weird circuits in their brains that if they get hungry enough, they're going to eat anybody that gets in their way. It's, it's not very fancy. So no matter how much you feel like your friends and they know you and you've played around and you wrestled them in the grass when they get hungry, sufficiently hungry they will eat you yeah yeah but like more broadly i feel like you know if you really care about wildlife you kind of have to give it space in its way that's uh yeah, yeah like a tricky thing like yeah, apparently- lunch i read i read a book on the american bison right and it was a wonderful book because it sort of dove into the history its relationship with the native american tribes and with the you know the early USA, all these things. But he actually had an extended section in one of the chapters exactly about this, where he said, like, look, this is just, if, if you deal with bison, which are these big, big animals on a regular basis, uh, there are the people who respect them and know that they are dangerous and give them space. And then there are people who don't and get hurt sooner or later. Like you either know this and you give them space or you think, oh, we're buds and you get up close and you're you know, buddy, buddy with all the bisons and then you get kicked in the face and you go to the hospital and possibly die. Mm. So wild animals should be treated as wild animals. Good lesson. Mm-hmm. Wow. You guys really are auditioning hard for the park ranger role, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, Sounds that's like a great life. I would love to read that book. What's it called? Do you remember? It's called uh, The American Bison, A Natural History. Oh, wow. Sounds I can send it to you. It's, it's really a beautiful book launch. Yeah, I would um, love that. Good title, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's by this guy whose entire shtick was The American Bison. 
Like he grew up in like, I think it was Wyoming on a, a bison ranch. And he grew up like riding his horse around, herding these animals. And his grandpa was like integral towards saving the bison when it almost became extinct in the late 19th century. And then he ended up becoming a professor of uh, biology in some California school. And he uh, basically studied only the bison. He would go on field trips for years and just try to figure them out. Yeah, I think you mean, Andrew, he became a professor of bisonology. (laughs) Bisology. 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 You got to have your sticks. I respect it. Sounds like a major for athletes at Division I schools. (laughs) That's that's a very good point. I think it would be a beautiful major. I think it'd be great. I just regret that I couldn't major in biology myself. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so should we do synopsis? Yeah, let's dive into this. We've, we've sort of covered a lot of weird topics that are totally unrelated to the story at hand today. Um, but again, the story for today is Recitatif by Toni Morrison, which is a short story that sort of is made up of five shorter vignettes. Guys, this, this this sucks. I thought we were going to do a natural segue. I thought somehow oh. we were going to take it from Bison to musicology and Toni Morrison. I thought we were going to do it somehow. Like we were going to get to singing Bison and then we were going to get to Toni Morrison. Friend, I don't know how in the hell you expected me to tie in musicology with, sorry, the Bison. But um, I must protest. Bison's, no, I don't, I, I, I don't got Puppy, maybe you can talk about the American bison while singing a recitative. The American bison is big and it is cool, but you do not want to be friends with an American bison because it will kill you. Wait, now let's talk about recitative. Seamless, seamless, beautiful, crisp, tight. Oh my gosh, Quampy, I'm, I'm crying. Incredible segue, but I, you know what? I do have a question now that, mm-hmm. that I never answered for myself uh, in reading the story. Which is, what does the title have to do with the story? <laughs> so, Fran, I was about to get to that. The title is meant to evoke the, 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 a, a sense of how she approached this, right? So, she, with the, uh, all right. So, a recitatif, as we sort of mentioned briefly at the beginning of this pod, um, is in an opera or, I guess, a musical more generally, maybe, where they have too much things to say and not enough time to sing it all in a big old song. So they kind of sing it and kind of speak it in a mix. Um, so it has sort of a almost poetic quality, but also tries to get to the meat of like telling the story quickly and, and, and efficiently. Um, so you can imagine that Toni Morrison was thinking that she made this short story and it's in five smaller parts and she wanted to, uh, acknowledge how it had a vaguely poetic quality in the way it's set up while also saying like, okay, but it is a story and I need to like say this start to finish. So actually the way I thought the story went is the way I thought it was a recitative is because like they start out all happy and then they go sad and then they go happy and then they go sad. And you know what I mean? Cause like each time she, each time they meet each other, they're like at different stages. And so sometimes they're happy and sometimes they're sad. And it keeps on going like up and down and up and down and up and down. And so that's how I kind of thought it like all connected to recitative. Okay. I see that. So to 
to the to the listener who may not have read Recitatif, um, again, there's five short stories that compose the entirety of this, describing the relationship of two women. They meet when they're young girls, maybe eight or so, in an orphanage. Um, neither of their neither of them are actually orphans, but their mothers are at the moment incapable of taking care of them. Uh, the two girls are Twyla and Roberta, and Twyla's mom, quote unquote, likes dancing all night. So, which is in the book some sort of euphemism for I I don't know for sure either she's a stripper or she drinks too much or likes partying or maybe she's a woman of the night I don't know um, but either way she can't take care of her young girl Roberta's mom is very sick and I don't it's some some long sort of like festering disease that prevents her from taking care of her daughter so these girls they're in the orphanage Saint Bonnie's and they really latch on to each other because they're the only people they have. And Toni Morrison does a really interesting thing with the story and that she tells us that one of these girls is black and one of them is white, but she doesn't tell us straight up which one is which. So we can't immediately view the story through the, through the lens of race in like a who's who situation. We have to sort of pick up from the cues in the story and maybe try to guess. Um, I think it, a lot of people say that you can't, really ever truly know i sort of feel like by the end of the story you have a good sense of which one is black and which one is white um but that's open for interpretation anyways these girls they're at st bonnie's uh they're dealing with the social dynamics because they're these older girls who wear makeup and laugh at them all the time they call them the gargirls which is sort of a mishearing of the word gargoyles that roberta got from class once and then also, this seemed like a small detail at the moment, but I think it ends up becoming quite important. There is this cook there who is totally mute. She can't say a word and is bow-legged. And the girls love to make fun of her, um, including Roberta and Twyla. They they uh, say a few mean things to her or will sort of speak very harshly about her behind her back or once to her face. Um at one point, the girls' mothers are both allowed to come in for some Sunday, and they the girls' mothers actually don't get along very well at all. So Twyla's mom, who quote-unquote likes to dance all night, um, meets up with them. She's wearing like a really ratty fur coat, and she sees Roberta's mom, who's this very large, severe-looking woman with a giant cross and a Bible in her hand, quote-unquote the biggest Bible that Twyla had ever seen. And... Uh, Twyla's mom says, oh, hello, and tries to shake her hand. And Roberta's mom sees her in sort of a, you know, fur coat looking like she's wearing a lot of makeup and sort of like, no, 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 and walks away. Um, so that's the first moment where there's any sort of tension between Twyla and Roberta. Um, the first vignette ends with Twyla and Roberta leaving, actually, because they are, they no longer need to go back into the uh, orphanage. It turns out we we find out later on that Roberta ends up going back a couple of times more. But um, it basically their youth ends right there, which cuts into vignette number two, where Twyla is working at a Howard Johnson's, which is a type of motel, I guess. I'm not familiar with it. Maybe I just insulted a wide swath of the country by saying that, but I don't know what they were. But Howard Johnson's, and she's working as a waitress. And she actually bumps into Roberta, who is in a booth with two men, uh, 
and she's wearing like tons of really garish makeup uh, and she's on a long road trip. She's looking kind of out of it and she's kind of the cool girl right now. Twilight goes up and says, oh my gosh, Roberta, so good to see you. And Roberta goes, she's just really mean. She she kind of talks down to her. At one point, she's like, we're going to see Hendrix. And then Twyla's like, oh, Hendrix who? And Roberta's like, Jimi Hendrix? Are you kidding me? God, you're the worst. So not a very good meetup. This might be what Juanpi was referring to as like the sad part of the recitative. Uh, story three, they meet up at a grocery store, bump into each other. It's very, very amiable. They get off super well. They have a wonderful conversation. And they break by saying, uh, basically, oh, we have to stay in touch. We should definitely stay in touch. And they don't, of course. Here we learn that Roberta is now has married some rich IBM executive and is raking in tons of money. She has a chauffeur. She has a big fur coat or something. And Twyla has married a firefighter uh, and is living a comfortable, although much less affluent life with one son at this point. Then we get to story four, and this is where the racial tension really uh, starts to kick in because this is, uh, you know, like mid 20th century America. And we catch them right at the point where the schools start to get uh, bust. So I guess this is what, I don't know, the 70s. What do you guys think? I believe that's right. Yeah, this is the Northeast. They're outside of New York. And um, and yeah, busing or like, yes, busing, busing has started. Yeah, which uh, Roberta is picketing the busing line. This to me makes it, I feel like at that point, it's pretty obvious Roberta has to be the white parent parent or the white woman if she's picketing busing laws you know um and then twyla sees roberta there she's like what are you doing she stops her car and she's like like starts talking to her and then roberta's friends in the picketing line all surround twyla's car and start rocking it back and forth which is super sinister uh, and the cops come in and say all right ladies like cut it out get out of here um and then Twyla makes a point of going to the picketing line for the next week just to try to respond to Roberta. She like responds specifically to all her signs with particular attacks, tries to get after her. Um, I think it's here that there, I think it's this story, maybe the previous, where they have a conversation about uh, Maggie, who was the mute cook from the, from St. Bonnie's back in the day. And so Roberta turns to Twyla and accuses her of of uh, kicking good old Maggie, who was the, the bow-legged cook back from their days in St. Bonnie's, and says, you come here, you call me a bigot when you kick this poor old black woman who's totally defenseless. And Twyla's actually pretty shocked by this because she has no memory of doing such a thing. So she feels a little surprised. She's like, did I, did I really do this? Was Roberta just confused? Oh, she she sits with that for a while, but they they leave on very negative terms, um, and then they meet a fifth time, and this is the last uh, vignette of the story in the diner on Christmas Eve, um, and this this meetup is actually quite cathartic. They they reconcile quite to quite a large degree. They're on great terms, and uh, even though they're actually very on very good terms with each other. Roberta starts crying about the way that she treated Maggie herself. Um, 
So the book ends exactly there, where they personally are reconciled, but the way they treated this totally defenseless and uh, like disabled woman back in their childhood has sat with them very negatively, and there's no way to fix that. Um, so that's the story in short. Uh, the obviously large, major, important theme of this is the race of the of the two girls um, that you spend the whole time trying to pick up on, like what exactly is going on, what is the tension, and try you you can't immediately pin it on someone being white, someone being black, uh, because you don't know who's who. So you have to just engage with the racial tension as it is and piece it together at the end. Yeah. There are a couple of things that struck me that I just wanted to put on the record. This is like a bit, um, this is not like organized. Uh, but one of the things is that, that I think Toni Morrison did well is that she's really funny. Like kids are really funny. And that first vignette, which is the longest vignette. And in my opinion, the best vignette of the five is, uh, is excellent. So one of the really funny things is, um, is, uh, Twyla is, extremely embarrassed right because twyla's mom who yeah isn't living this very reputable life she comes in and they're they're visiting the orphanage i mean they're not really orphans but they're visiting this like home for children uh on a sunday and so they all have to go to church and uh yeah as you said andrew i mean uh twyla's mom her name is mary she comes and she's wearing these ridiculous clothes. She's wearing pants, which is not uh, an acceptable thing for women to do at the time when they were going to church. Uh, she's wearing pants that are like pretty tight on her. And people are pretty shocked, right? So Roberta's mom is shocked. And when she realizes that people are being really judgy, she gets like very defensive and unpleasant. And so she actually swears loudly. And she realizes how Roberta's mom is, is judging her. Uh, she swears, everyone turns around and, and hears. And then she's like groaning and crossing her legs. During the during the service, she takes out uh she takes out her um her mirror and she takes out her mirror and fixes her makeup. And um and uh you know it's very obvious that she's kind of misbehaving. Um Anyway, the thing that I want to bring up is how funny Twyla is because Twyla is so embarrassed and hates this so much. And she wanted Roberta's mom to, to like Mary, her mom. And uh, Twyla, uh, Twyla writes, or Twyla says in the vignette, all I could think of was that she really needed to be killed. And I just thought it was a funny <laughs> thing for like an eight-year-old girl to say, you know, I mean, on some level, it's like very sad, but I think, I think of it more as funny. Like a, a little kid, they can just get like so intense, you know, like, Especially, I think around that age, they get like really angry. And it's like the whole world's riding on this, but they're also old enough to like I don't know. Yeah, they're old enough to sort of have the maturity to to like voice these really strong sentiments. So that that yeah, was sure. I, I have a buddy who would say that all the time about a mutual friend of ours. It's like that's it. There's there's only one recourse. I have to kill him. There's, there's <laughs> yeah. one, one straw too too far. Yeah, you must and die. The other really funny thing that actually I thought maybe this could be a segue into kind of like spiritual things, uh, not spiritual, sorry, uh, social things. Although I think there's also some spiritual stuff in the, in the story, but social things uh, is this really good point that Twyla makes that like the people who they are really cared about in the, in the state home are actually the orphans. Like Twyla and Roberta are one of the things that brings them together is that they're the only two girls of like the 150 who 
whose parents are alive. And Twyla says some comment to the effect of like, oh, you know, we're not orphans whose parents are beautiful angels in the sky, right? We just have parents who don't care about us. Yeah, which is kind of a funny line is like, we're not real orphans with dead parents waiting for us in heaven. Um, yeah. Almost as, though she, almost as though she wanted that. Like she felt left yeah. out that she was a fake orphan. No, but I read it differently. I thought I read it more as a social critique and a really good one because I think there's a lot to that. Like we're not real orphans. Like where does society actually kind of give its attention? Like, like especially nowadays, I feel like collectively we get so moved by things, you know, like things take off on social media and there's these like, like, uh, cause celebre as the phrase is like these like celebrated causes that are that are really like everyone rallies behind you know like this wolf that i was talking about earlier this wolf that like it's going viral on social media and everybody's talking about the wolf and everybody's trying to save the wolf and that's okay right like that's that, i don't think it's a bad thing but uh what gets ignored right i think it's it's kind of funny i was uh i mean not to get too dark but i was reading recently there was all this like uh trouble in the uk um because this woman was was horribly like attacked and killed when she was walking home. And someone wrote that like, look, it's great that there's like a lot of pushback against like violence towards women and how we can build a better society and be better. But it also is kind of telling that every time something like this blows up, it's like a really pretty white blonde woman. Uh, and I thought that was kind of striking. And so this is what that reminded me of. Like we kind of pick and choose what we what we get really worked up about. And I feel like we ignore a lot and maybe like we get, we get really moved about the kid who's an orphan. His parents died when he was really young and he's such a sweet looking kid, such a cute looking kid, but we don't get really moved about like the kid who's also in the orphanage, but who, whose parents are drug addicts or something, you know? So that kind of, that kind of, it was funny, but it also kind of struck a chord with me. Hmm. A great point, Wunsch. I'm also impressed that you managed to tie that in with the, the wolves from the beginning of the pod. Oh, thanks. You know, we, that's, we, that's Friend, what we there's try your tying in. Mm-hmm. Seamless. Perfect. Yeah. The one thing that really stuck with me the most is that it's it's a it's a beautiful story all the way through. Um, but she doesn't end with just them reconciling among themselves, which would be nice. She ends with Roberta lamenting how she treated Maggie. And it's like, oh, they spend their whole lives, you know, bouncing around each other in each other's orbits. Like friends, then enemies, then friends, then enemies, then friends. And all that can be reconciled and washed away to some extent. But the one thing that can't be is that they were cruel to an innocent woman who deserved kindness back when they were kids. And that sin just sits with them the rest of their lives, eating away at them. Like, how could I have done that to a woman who was, I don't know, she deserved nothing but her sympathy. I mean, she was the, you know, she, she had rickets, you know, she, she was totally mute, couldn't say a word and people were just mocking her all the time. And there's a scene where the, the gargoyles, so the, the mean older girls in the orphanage, uh, start berating Maggie. And I think it's kind of, I, I don't know if it's ever fully clear if this actually happens or if this is sort of fabricated, but maybe they start kicking her and physically abusing her. And uh, Twyla and Roberta don't contribute, but they do sit there and kind of wish that they could in their own words. They do wish that they could kind of like have that same power and exert it on someone else. Um, And even just feeling that way, even if they don't kick Maggie themselves, uh, ate away at their soul for many years. It was very unpleasant. So I think it it was just beautiful that 
she Tony Tony Morrison made the point that the cruelty to the innocent will sit with you for so long and is probably much worse to your soul um, than many other things could be. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's well said. I think Maggie is definitely a cool part of the story. I like the ending, as you say. In a way, I felt like the ending, it enriched the story a lot because it made it not just... Not that, I mean, I think like you could easily write a very deep and moving story, obviously, about race and just about the race of these two girls. Like that would be enough for sure. But it kind of made it a little bit deeper, you know, because it, it, it sort of made you think about the other ways that like people are suffering, you know, and how, I don't know, you sort of always have to keep an eye out for that kind of thing, I guess. So I thought that was cool. And I also think, not to get too English classy here, but I think on some level, Maggie, well, Maggie, obviously, like, I think she represents the first vignette and especially like this state where they live without really caring about each other's race. I think like every other vignette, the other four, it's so colored by the race, like the, the, the fact that one of them is black and one of them is white, right? In the diner, uh, not the diner, but the Howard Johnson where she's a waitress in the supermarket where it's like a clearly very shishi supermarket that she can't really afford to shop in, whereas Roberta shows up and she's literally in a limousine. Uh, all the other vignettes are colored by race, but it's very beautiful that, that the first one, they're just two eight-year-old girls who can be like really close friends. But then I think the fact that Maggie ends up being like really, like, I mean, they literally can't agree on Maggie's race, right? They don't know whether she was white or black. They can't remember it. So Maggie really represents that. But then the fact that that gets kind of gets taken away from them, at least it made me question the innocence a little bit. You know, it's like, oh, that's not actually like a perfect world if you can just ignore that, all that stuff, because, uh, because there are people like Maggie who are being beat up, you know, and you don't, uh, you, you shouldn't get to ignore that, even if you're an eight-year-old. So I know, yeah, it was a cool twist. It definitely got me thinking. You know, I experienced the story in a much simpler level. I just, you know, I, I just took it as a story about two people who uh, ought to have been friends but couldn't be because of their social circumstances, right? Because in the beginning, there's just a very natural kinship between them. And the story is about how that doesn't really pan out uh, over the course of the years because uh, one of them is white and one of them's black. I think that's a sound analysis. I mean, it's not even really an analysis. I mean, that was just how I reacted to an emotional level, right? Sometimes uh, you can have stories about you can have stories about about how uh, you know how two people who are romantically attracted to each other can't be friends because you know they're the wrong family or the wrong class or the wrong race. But you know this this is the same kind of story, except with a platonic friendship. Yeah, I think that's a nice parallel. I hadn't thought about the kind of like frustrated love, but it is sad because they seem like great friends when they're eight. You know, they share everything. Uh, Twilight even says like we're made for each other because Roberta doesn't like some of her food and she gives it to Twilight no problem and uh, it's a pretty nice friendship for four months. I think I think the the having the race of the kids be ambiguous for a while uh, makes it a uh, an interesting exercise to read through and and not be able to immediately tie it into your framework. I think that's also how she sold it to most people. Like when I was sort of. I think dipping through Wikipedia and stuff, that that was the most distinguishing feature of the story and how she would often talk about it is that it was 
racism, but stripped of the race. That's not a great way of phrasing it, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, you know, it is funny. I, I mean, I, I I did not pick up on that. Like from the beginning, I was like, Twyla is clearly the black girl. Roberta is clearly the white girl. In retrospect, that's not obvious. It never, it never even occurred to me. For some reason, I immediately placed Twyla as black and Roberta as white. Now, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why, though. This story is billed as totally ambiguous the whole way through by a lot of people. So am I missing something? Is it secretly still ambiguous if you like really pick apart the details? Um, or is everybody just not reading the story that carefully? I mean, that's not true, right? Well, um, I mean, if you think about it, maybe is it ever really clear that one of them is pro-busing and one of them is anti? That's a great point, right? Because Roberta's protesting and she says, mothers have rights. And then Twyla shows up. There's another funny part of the story that I forgot to mention, actually. Now that they're adults... Twyla and Roberta, they get the, they get into this beef at the protest. And then Twyla like almost goes crazy. Like she has to like show up Roberta. So she shows up with signs that don't make any sense on their own, but only make sense in the context of Roberta's signs. And then they keep like switching up the signs so that uh, someone on Twyla's side at the protest, like keeps asking her like, wait, what does your sign mean? Like one of her signs, for example, Roberta's protesting with mothers have rights. And then Twyla shows up with, and children do too. But just the sign, and children do too on its own, doesn't mean anything. So her whole side is confused, and eventually she leaves. She stops protesting because, like, people don't really get what she's trying to do. But she's really just protesting with uh, Roberta. But yeah, I don't know which side is which. I think that's kind of a cool symmetry in the story. No, but I see that. But then there's the point where Roberta says, and you call me a bigot, you know? So... Why would Twyla ever call Roberta a bigot unless Roberta were the one picketing against school busing? Uh, I mean, I guess, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's certainly a lot of white people who, who complain about so-called reverse racism. So I guess that could be what's going on, but you're right. I, I didn't think about that either. Maybe, maybe that is, Maybe there's more evidence for ambiguity, and and maybe maybe on a different day, I would have uh, initially um, initially placed Roberta as the as the as the black person and Twyla as the white person. I think if I had to pin it down for myself, it's knowing that Toni Morrison is black and and Twyla being the narrator of the story. So maybe that's why it was kind of automatic in my head. But you know that I think we're discovering that that's not necessarily. Uh, you know, that's right totally answer. fair. And you know what? I didn't think about that at all. But now that you say it, I think maybe that's part of the reason. Because Twyla is definitely the point of view character. So, you know, I've been like just sitting here this whole time, just listening to you guys talk about this story and like everything that it brought up with you guys, like um, all that stuff. But really, when I was reading the story, I didn't really pick up on any of this stuff. Well, first of all, I didn't even pick up that there was any ambiguity between their race. I I probably just didn't read the story in well enough, which I don't know. But it just it raised a lot of questions in me like um well, maybe they are right, but then I don't know. It's just I didn't pick up on like any of this stuff first of all cuz I didn't even pick up that 
uh, their race was different, but um, I don't know. It's just, it's really, it's raised a lot of questions about me, about the story, about all that. Well, hang on. I don't want to be too therapeutic here, but I want to, I do want to say this because I think that's like very okay. You know, like I think if you read the story and you got a lot of questions and you enjoyed the story, I feel like that's, that's more than enough, you know? So like, if you go into the story and you're like, okay, I am like, my radar is totally up. I'm totally ready to like figure out, crack this story open like a nut and figure out what's going on. I think that's kind of a bad way to read. I mean, maybe that's too strong, but like, that's yeah, not no, the- but you guys are like calling it like you read other Toni Morrison things and they've been like much deeper. And then I'm over here. I'm like, I didn't pick up on half of this stuff. Yeah, but that's yeah. a copy. That's fine though. I mean, like the goal should be to enjoy these stories. Right. And for my part, I didn't, I don't, like I, I don't, I don't know. I, I didn't sit down and be like, let me try to make the most beautiful analysis I could. I was briefly tempted, actually, to try to somehow explain this story as an allegory for original sin in the Garden of Eden, and then I was like, no, that's stupid. I got to tone it back. But I don't know. I just just look at the parts that you think in this are are pretty or nice in the story or touching or heartbreaking. I don't know, and fixate on those. Well, what did I think was nice? Well, I thought like when they were, um, when they were kids, that was nice. Just hearing their friendship grow and like making those baskets for Easter and stuff. I thought that was really nice. Agreed. Um, what else did I think was nice? I thought it was nice when they, um, when they met at the supermarket. I thought that was nice. I didn't pick up on anything, but it's just like, no, I didn't even think that was nice. What I thought was nice was that every time that Twyla saw Roberta, every time she just kept on trying to be nice. You know what I mean? Every time she's like, oh, hey, Roberta, how you doing? Or like the time before in the supermarket, the time before, like she was like with these two dudes and she was super rude to her. She was like, do I even know you? And then like every time she was trying to be nice. And so I don't know. I mean, not every time she was trying to be nice. Of course, like at the end with the picketing signs, she tries to be mean to who is it, Roberta? And she's like picketing signs to like get Roberta angry. But I don't yeah, it's very sympathetic, right? It's like she's super nice and outgoing and tries yeah. to reach out to this girl every time. And then she only pushes back when Roberta starts picketing the, the busing of black children into white neighborhoods. Which I don't know, but I don't, I just read the story on a much simpler level. And as you guys say, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world, but I don't know. Yeah, I think that's fine. Um, cool. Well, I think this has been good. I feel like we're running a little long, so we might want to wrap it up. We did not discuss who or what we're going to read next week. Yeah, it's a great point. Watch. We, I don't think we know who's up this week. Audience. Hmm. Have a short story for us. No, no, no. I, I, guys, I have an idea. Just give me a second here. Let me, let me pull it up. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, good... let's think of something funny to talk about. What's funny? Your face. <laughs> oh. Your face, Andrew. I was about to say uh, that, but then I, I, I didn't think I should stoop so low. But then clearly you did. So, was a newly vaccinated person, I am immune to your insults, Juan Pablo. Ooh. You're not vaccinated against me, buddy. Mm-hmm. All right, guys, let's let's uh let's wrap it up. Oh. We'll talk about next week's story uh off the air, so to speak.
Okay. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of The Brothers F. We're glad you joined us as always. And we'll see you next time. No, 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 no. We're glad you joined us as always. Oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. Hmm. Okay. Wait, I'm going to go three, two, just so it's easier on the editor. Oh, wow. no. You made it so harder <laughs> on the editor. You <laughs> <laughs> just speak and we don't have to go back. Do you get how editing works? <laughs> no, no, but that way there's like a space between one other people. Okay, so I like Thank you for joining the Brothers F. We hope you will to see you. We hope you all subscribe on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Send us any questions or comments that you may have to our email, brothersfpod at gmail.com. All right, I'm going to ask this. <laughs> hey, everyone, this is Swampy, and I just wanted to make sure that you subscribe to the Brothers F on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, if you have Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, make sure to follow us there too. See you next time on The Brothers F.